podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we bring them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. How you doing, Ben? I'm doing pretty good today. That's Um, great. Yeah, it's been a real roller coaster of a week, but today I'm doing fine. Yeah, same here. (laughs) Um, I am very excited for today's movie. Yeah, I'm intrigued. What are we watching? So today we are watching... Strangler of the Swamp from 1946, and it is writer-director Frank Vispar's remake in America of his own German film, Fairman Maria, from 10 years before, Mm -hmm. which we had quite a high opinion of, if I recall. Absolutely, yeah. Do you want to refresh the audience's memory on Fairman Maria, as it has been... Ten years. years. <laughs> this is like the, like, ten-year challenge with the photos. Right, sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you do want to just go back and listen, folks, Fairman Maria is episode 57. It is currently ranked number 18. Which is pretty darn good. Yes. And it was the last horror movie made in Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. It stars Sybil Schmitz and Peter Voss. And, as Ben mentioned, was written by Frank Visbar and Hans-Jürgen Nerenz, directed by Frank Visbar. Cinematography was by Franz Weimar. Music by Herbert Wint and the editor Lena Newman. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to name everyone involved because they made an anti-Nazi movie in Nazi Germany. Fair, yeah. So, you know... Hat tip to their courage, as it were. Sure. As far as the plot, there's a small town near the river border between two unnamed countries. Um, The side that we are on, this town, is also near a marsh. One night, the old ferryman hears a clang on the other side of the river, which is the passenger's call. It's a tall stranger in a dark cloak. So the ferryman goes and gets him, and halfway across the river bringing the stranger to the other side, the ferryman dies of a heart attack, and the stranger just takes the ferry back to his original side. So it's easy to see that this is a representation of death, Mm -hmm. um, and he's haunting the shores, as it were. Right. So now the town is looking for a new ferryman, and new-to-town immigrant Maria is happy to take the job. That night, she hears a passenger call on the other side of the river, And when she gets there, it's an injured man who's being pursued by these tall, dark strangers. She takes him over to her side of the river and starts to nurse him back to health. Later, another passenger calls. This is a few weeks later. And the first stranger, Death, is on the other side and he is dressed as basically an SS officer. And he says that he is looking for the wounded man. Maria brings him to the other side, but lies and says that he's hiding in the town. So they go into town together. She does try to escape and hide in a church, thinking that would protect her, but he has, like, a great line about, like, it takes more than the power of prayer to stop me. Mm -hmm. So in her time in the town, she knows a shortcut through the marsh that's, like, a safe way to get through the marsh without sinking into the mud. So, once death 
is like, no, I know you have the wounded man, take me to him. She leads him across the marshes. So she knows the safe route, so she doesn't sink into the mud, but he does, and he, like, slowly sinks into quicksand. With death defeated, Maria and the wounded man are able to return to his country and live happily ever after. In our episode, um, number 57, we really praised the atmospheric nature and how it sets up this German horror film in a very pastoral setting. It finds a way to continue German expressionism, but in a rural setting, whereas like all of the previous movies have used German expressionism in the artificial setting of a city. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way they do it in Fairman Maria is through the mood, cinematography, and the music. It's also, as I said, intensely anti-Nazi, despite being made at a time when all cultural products, like film, were required to be within a narrow set of rules as determined by Joseph Goebbels. Yeah. The way that they organized cultural products and the making of cultural products is you needed to have membership to Nazi-affiliated groups like the Reich Filmkammer that was mandatory in order to even make films. So while not all films were explicitly propaganda, the messaging was tightly controlled as well as who gets to create that messaging. That messaging was always along the lines of being light entertainment and escapism, mm-hmm. um, as well as the Volkisch movement, which is, with the Nazi ideology, a call to go back to folktales and retelling these folktales. Yeah, pastoralism. Yeah, and so with Fairman Maria, Visbar weaponizes that pastoral folktale setting against Nazism with the personification of death as an SS officer. Further... As we explained in that episode, our protagonist, Maria, is an immigrant. Mm -hmm. She has several Jewish signifiers, and she, at one point, um, the wounded man has a fever, and he starts, like, singing his national anthem, and she's quite afraid around this moment for his health, but also clearly, like, afraid of the blind patriotism that he's showing. And this protagonist defeats the evil for what seems like it would be a happy ending. Like, Maria and the Wounded Man literally walk into a sunset. Um, but as Ben points out in the episode, it would not actually have been happy because if we're going on the idea of, like, Wounded Man's home country is Germany, and this is, like, a neighboring country, and they're going back to Germany, at this time there are policies about Germans marrying Jewish people. Mm-hmm. Um, So it would not have been a happy ending, even with contemporary policies. Mm -hmm. I think, like, Fairman Maria is high up on the list because of the on-screen skill and storytelling craft that we see. But I think it's also high up because of the societal and political context that it was made in. Um, The bravery of Frank Visbar and others making the film. Mm Mm-hmm and creating an anti-Nazi film under the guise of Nazi ideology and weaponizing those tools against them. Yeah, it's a very it's a very brave movie and a little bit like, you know, it, it has this like daredevil kind of feel in a way because it's taking these risks to make a story like this, you know, because yes, it's all coded, so there's no explicit anti-Nazi content, mm-hmm. but like 
Goebbels and the other people who were running the cultural output of the country were people who were adept at symbolism, right? Like yeah. they weren't people who you, they weren't the fucking Hayes office where <laughs> you could fool them easily by using the word gunsel. Like it, it, they were people who understood how to use this kind of stuff. So the mm-hmm. fact that they were able to get this movie past them is like really quite incredible. And I think affected our impression of it quite a bit. Definitely. So I am really curious to see how Frank Visbar brings both his story and possibly his political leanings into this American remake. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm very interested to see what it does and how it does it and how much of the political context is left behind, particularly because we're coming in at 1946. So we're not just coming to America and making this movie again, but now it's wartime. We're actually coming to America and making this movie again, and we're post-war. Yes, yeah. So Frank Vispar emigrated from Germany to the United States in 1939, which, given the content of Fairman Maria in 1936, and the fact that Vispar's wife was Jewish, feels shockingly late in the game to be making that move and very lucky for them to be able to get out at that later date. In 1943, they moved to Hollywood for Vispar to continue his career as a filmmaker. His first American film was Secrets of a Sorority Girl in 1945. Excuse me? Which was a crime drama he co-directed for PRC with Lou Landers. Okay. Kind of like a you know, ooh, these sorority girls are actually all mixed up with, like, gangs and juvenile delinquency <laughs> kind of movie, you know? Yeah, no, it's it's exactly what it sounds like mm-hmm. it is. Yeah. So PRC, meanwhile, was going through some changes at this time. The last PRC movie we watched for the show was The Monster Maker back in 1944. Mm-hmm. In 1943, the studio had been bought from the Neufeld Brothers by railroad magnate Robert R. Young, who was the owner of the American branch of Pathé. Is he related to Harold Young, who is a director we've seen before? No. Okay. Robert R. Young owned a ton of railroads and was like a rich, like, Monopoly-esque railroad tycoon. Okay. Like, yeah. <laughs> In 1944, Pathé began to make efforts to, I guess you could say, class up the joint at PRC. <laughs> Black Cat director Edgar G. Ulmer was brought in to direct several well-regarded film noirs there, including 1945's Detour. Yeah, that's a really good movie, by the way. And Douglas Sirk's Hitler's Madman was picked up for distribution by MGM. The first time MGM distributed a film they had not themselves produced. The PRC musical Minstrel Men earned the company its first Oscar nomination, uh, in that case for musical score. So... They were kind of in this process of trying to change the image of PRC to be something a little bit more classy, while still, you know, not spending a ton of money. Vispar's second film at PRC would be Strangler of the Swamp. Okay. Yeah. He would write and direct this revamp of Fairman Maria, uh, with assistance from PRC writer Leo McCarthy, and assistance on the English dialogue from PRC dialogue director Harold Erickson. So the film's makeup is by Bud Westmore, 
one of the illustrious six Westmore brothers. He was the second youngest in the family, uh, and Bud had yet to rise at this point to the heights of his older brothers. Monty was head of makeup at MGM, Perk was head of makeup at Warner Brothers, Earn was head of makeup at 20th Century Fox, and Wally was head of makeup at Paramount. Uh, maybe a bit of an awkward Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone coming in just like lording, like, I work at MGM! Sure. Hey, bud, how's PRC going? <laughs> yeah, um, Bud had been at PRC for about a year at this point, and in that time he had made seven films for them, including this one. And just for the record, uh, Bud's younger brother, uh, Frank, was apprenticing under Wally at Paramount. Ooh. <laughs> so the role of Maria this time around is played by Rosemary LaPlanche. And she was born in L.A. in 1923 and won Miss California at age 17 and then again at age 18 and then won Miss America the same year. Wow, okay. A beauty queen. Mm-hmm. She played herself in the 1943 comedy Two Weeks to Live and embarked on an acting career, with a majority of her roles being small, uncredited appearances. Strangler of the Swamp was her first starring role. The young love interest in this version is played by someone best known to audiences today as a writer, director, and producer, and that is Blake Edwards, born William Blake Crump in... <laughs> I see why he changed his name. Uh, in 1922 in Tulsa, Oklahoma... His stepfather, James McEdwards, moved the family to L.A. and became a production manager. Blake served in the Coast Guard in World War II and in the years following became an actor. He would later characterize his career as an actor as being uncooperative and characterizing himself as a smart-ass kid. <laughs> uh, his tendency to talk back to directors <laughs> led him to realize that he would rather give direction, then take it. Fair enough. Famous films of Blake Edwards that you may have heard of include Breakfast at Tiffany's, The Pink Panther, A Shot in the Dark, The Party, six more Pink Panther films, and Victor Victoria. Okay. I haven't heard of six more Pink Panther films. Which one is that about? What does Detective Crusoe get into? Uh <sighs> Finally, as the film's villain, is Charles Middleton, who, at the age of 72, had enjoyed a long career as a character actor, often playing villainous roles thanks to his baritone voice. Mm. His best-known role is as Ming the Merciless, adversary of Flash Gordon in the three Flash Gordon serials from Universal that were released between 1936 and 1940. He would pass away in 1949. Wow, so this is... This is near the end of the line for him. Yeah. Strangler of the Swamp was released in January of 1946 and has gone on to receive a reputation alongside Detour as one of PRC's finer efforts. It received a pretty good DVD release from Image Entertainment in 2002 that is now out of print, and I would recommend staying away from from the 2013 DVD release from Films Around the World, 
which is subpar, as most of the releases from that company are. As a public domain film, we have a copy of it up on our YouTube playlist. And you can find that playlist at screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Strangler of the Swamp from 1946, directed by Frank Visbar. See you on the other side, everybody. everybody to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Strangler of the Swamp from 1946, directed by Frank Wispar. Sarah, what did you think? I am disappointed. Yeah. It is a pale comparison to its original Fairman Maria. I would agree, but I do think it's pretty good by PRC standards. I mean, I think the production value is impressive for PRC, but that's kind of it for me. Mm. Um, yeah. You're giving me a face. Why don't we dive into the story? Okay. So the main beats are still here from Fairman Maria, but we have some remixing going on. It opens on some men bringing in a body from the swamp. It's this kid who is named, but I didn't catch it. Uh, he was swimming in the swamp, as I'm sure you do. Uh, he drowned from roots getting tangled around his neck. But, as he's brought in, other people in the village, mostly old women, are convinced that no, it was the strangler of the swamp. He didn't die from roots, he was strangled. The story goes, as we learn through the movie, the strangler is the ghost of Douglas, the old ferryman, who was falsely accused of murder and quickly hanged for the crime. Because he was innocent, um, but he was being hanged anyways, he cursed those who convicted him, saying that he'll come back and kill them and their descendants. There is mention of a way to lift the curse, and that is if one of those people who were cursed, so either one of the convictors or their descendants, comes to the Strangler willingly, is basically willing to sacrifice themselves um, for the other people. Now that was a few years ago, and there have been some deaths here and there, but nothing that would, I think, constitute a killing spree in modern terms. Um, It's not like ten people die in a night type of thing. Yeah, it does seem, though, like there's been a series of weirdly strangling-related deaths lately. It's like, nobody gets strangled by, like, a rope, but it's all like, oh, yeah, this guy, like, got knocked off his horse and strangled by the reins. Like, all stuff where it's like, "Mm." (laughs) hmm. That night, the strangler comes for the now ferryman operator, Joseph, Um, and how he is killed. We see that the ghost appears on screen and is like, I'm getting you because of the curse. Basically, a noose that had been left up after using it to hang Douglas, gets wrapped around Joseph's neck and gets pulled by um, some twigs as he's on his ferry and he gets strangled and pulled into the swamp. 
Yeah, and this is like roughly equivalent to the opening of the original movie where the old ferryman dies. Yeah, he dies of a heart attack. Though. Yes, I just mean like in the structure. Yes. The next day, Joseph's granddaughter, Maria, arrives in town. Um, she was coming to visit and to take over the business. Now that Joseph is dead, she's like, well, I, I guess I'll still take over the ferryman business. So she's told that her grandfather passed away peacefully. We see that the ghost kind of strangled him in a, a happenstance way. Um, and the official story is that Joseph committed suicide. Um, now, the kind of head honcho of the town is this man named Christian Sanders. He, after going through Joseph's belongings, knows that Joseph had a confession letter um, confessing to the murder of the original person and pinning it on Douglas. Um, kind of just so he could take over the ferry. Which is... It's strange to me. Yes. It's strange to me that fairies, like the ones depicted in this and the other movie, even, like, need, like, a hired operator. It seems like anyone could do it, but whatever. <laughs> now, Sanders' son, Chris, has arrived back from the city, and uh, he and Maria begin to fall in love. Um, Chris wants to marry Maria, but his dad, Sanders, won't give a blessing because, well, her grandfather actually murdered someone. It seems like the underwriting thing going on with Christian is, like, because they believed Joseph and hung Douglas, like, Sanders is on, like, the village council or whatever and is, like, the big, as you said, head honcho. And so, like, he was one of the guys, like, pushing for, like, the quick execution and thus one of the guys under the curse so it feels like the rationale he's giving his son is some bullshit cover for, like, having her around makes me uncomfortable because I now know that, you know, we fucked up, basically. Yeah. yeah. Sanders also doesn't believe in the curse. He thinks it's a bunch of, like, old wives' tales, basically. Yeah. Um, in any case, Chris storms out and he heads to Maria's, but on the way he is attacked by the Strangler. Maria hears him, like, struggling in the woods with a noose around his neck, goes in and saves him, and takes him to her little hut. She then encounters the strangler herself, and um, he tries to go to the hut to finish the job, as it were, with Chris, and Chris is no longer there. At this point, Maria runs to the town for help. The strangler's kind of following her and doing supernatural things to make it so no one can... Uh, hear her, or uh, she can't get any kind of help. She does succeed, however, in finding Sanders. There's kind of this bit of a sequence where everyone's kind of running around in fog, Sanders eventually finding his son and kind of half carrying, half dragging him around the swamp. Um, but they and Maria take refuge in the town church. Douglas is just outside the church threshold, kind of taunting them, saying that Chris is going to die, no matter what you do. So Maria goes outside the door, confronts the strangler, says, basically, take me instead, um, be at rest, give yourself up to the Almighty, go at peace, whatever. And Douglas melts into the swamp, and um, because she, she lifted the curse by offering herself willingly, and everyone in the town is saved. The end. So you can see, like the outline 
of Ferryman Maria here still, but obviously like a lot of changes were made. And I think there are two directions those changes seem to be coming from. Yeah. One of them is removing the movie from its like earlier political context Mm -hmm. and recontextualizing it for an American audience. Now, what I thought was kind of funny was, I mean, I presume the setting is the American South and I presume the setting is contemporary, but to be fair, there are no, just like in the original Ferryman Maria, there are no like place or time markers Mm -hmm. at all. Um, There was mention of like the big city. Right. But there's no name for that city. Yeah. So it sort of retains this kind of like folktale-ish, fairy tale-ish quality that, you know, where it happens nowhere and no when. Just like a universal movie. Right. So the thing that I sort of noticed is that what's been put in place to replace the political allegory is this kind of like Sleepy Hollow-esque small town folk story framework. It has like, it really did remind me of like Sleepy Hollow Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, where it's this small town where everyone knows each other and there's this, you know, legend of this spooky ghost. The other direction where changes are coming from seem to be mostly monetary. Like, obviously, Chris is sort of the equivalent of the wounded soldier from the first movie. And in the first movie, you know, Maria tries to lead Death on, like, a merry goose chase through the town to distract Death from, like, where the wounded soldier is. And she does eventually then go to the church. There's, like... and, And one of the things that she does in the original movie is lead Death to, like, a town dance that's happening, this big festival... In this movie, there's mention of a Halloween dance, but we never see it, and we never go there. And when she's going around the town, we just see the exteriors of buildings where, like, lights are turning off and doors are closing because the ghost is doing it. And it just feels like, oh, right, we don't have money for townsfolk, Mm -hmm. right? And a lot of the changes kind of feel a bit like that, too, like just keeping the focus smaller because we don't have a lot of dough. You know, for one thing, obviously unlike the original, this was shot on a set. Yeah, I will say this set is pretty impressive for PRC. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some outdoor scenes as well, which I know is quite rare for a Poverty Row studio. So I think it, it's a sign that they are clearly trying to level up the studio. And despite the artificiality of the set, one advantage it does give Wizbar is the ability to exert a pretty high level of control over the mood and atmosphere by manipulating, you know, how much fog and how much shadows are in the frame. During the sequence, I kind of mentioned how, like, they're wandering through the fog. So Chris uh, is still injured, and he's, like, lying on the ground in the fog, and his dad finds him. And as he's lying down in the fog, I just kept thinking of that um, anecdote you had from the Wolfman, where Evelyn Anchors, like, passed out from being in the smoke for too long. Yes. To kind of go back to what you said about the way that they've changed things. Mm -hmm. I think you're right in terms of the two reasons why they changed things. Um, But by shifting it to be about this town's, like, spooky story... Um, spooky backstory, almost, it takes it away for from being a story about Maria. Yeah, so this is one of the big problems, right? I yeah. mean, 
she's this outsider who comes into town, but the story's not really about her. It's not even really about Chris. It's about his dad. Yeah, it's about Christian, Sanders, and Douglas. That's who the story's between. Yeah, I see what you mean about, like, the Sleepy Hollow thing, but because it's a curse on just a select few people, Mm -hmm. it doesn't have the same kind of, like, terror, I think, because I'm not cursed. Yeah, the Headless Horseman, like, goes after anyone who's, like, idiot enough to ride through at night or whatever, right? Whereas this is, like, a specific thing against specific people, and Maria's a complete outsider to that. You know, it's easy to compare it to... For example, Nightmare on Elm Street, mm-hmm. where Freddy Krueger is coming after people for revenge, but they are specifically the kids of, like, the adults who are responsible for, like, sending him away to be executed or whatever his backstory is. Um, <laughs> so, like, there's a connection there. But here, like, it, it's weird because the fact that Maria is an outsider is left over from the original story, and I don't think it works in terms of what they wanted to focus on here. It, I don't think they're trying to do a political thing no, here. No, they're not at all. Um, I, like, the closest I could think of in terms of thematic meaning is, like, there being something about the sins of the father being the responsibility of their kids, but there's not really enough to actually dig into. And, you know, the only other, I think, you know, political theming you could look at is that Sanders is this big rich guy who owns the town and, like, decides, like, oh, we're not going to look into this ghost thing or, yeah, we're going to kill this guy on, nothing, like, very little evidence or, oh, no, we're going to use all the church funds to fucking pave the, the road and, and drain the swamp. Like, he's this guy who just unilaterally decides things kind of for everyone because he's the richest guy in town. And then he, like, suffers all of these, you know, tragedies and, and he's the source of, like, he's the target of the ghost and all that stuff. So there's kind of, like, a a mild, like dig at rich guys who get away with murder, basically. But honestly, that's not super unique in American storytelling. Like, yes, IRL, American society privileges, like, the rich old guy. But nine times out of ten, the rich old guy is the villain in American stories. Yeah, I totally agree. But I do take issue with you saying that Sanders has suffered these tragedies, because he hasn't. He hasn't really suffered at all. Yeah, I mean, I guess I just meant that, like, it it happens to his son and and this kind of stuff. But with Maria, with regards to Maria, the only reason that she has to be an outsider in this one is because the malevolent force in this version, in this case Douglas's ghost, is specifically tied to this specific town, the new ferryman can't be from this town because, you know, quite rightly, like, they try to make the new ferryman someone from the town, and he's like, fuck that. <laughs> no way. That very be cursed. Like, every, you know, it makes sense that no one would want the job at this point. So that's the only reason she has to be an outsider, but it removes her a lot from the overall conflict. And I do want to say I was still kind of impressed that she was allowed to retain um, an amount of independence and agency that was significant for a woman in a 40s American horror picture. Yeah. And that the climax is about her rescuing Chris, and that that was retained from the original. It's not about Chris rescuing her. 
which yeah. is notable. Yeah, I would agree. Like, they go out of their way to say, for her to, for her to say things like, no, I like my job, I want to keep working. Mm-hmm. Like, why would I want to marry and not be working? Like, why should I stay in town? I want to be independent. Um, which I thought was quite interesting, because she also gives a bit of backstory to herself where she was alone in the big city and struggled there. Mm-hmm. But part of the reason why she wants this ferryman job is because she'll be able to interact with people every day. Mm-hmm. She is. She hasn't been in this town for ten years, but she is from here originally. Yeah. And so this is home. Versus, like, the city, it sounds like when she moved away, she moved away on her own. And cities can be very isolating if you don't know anyone in them. And the other thing that she says about why she wants the ferry job is it's something that's hers. As opposed to, it sounds like, in the city where she was, you know some employee of some company and just didn't have ownership over her life. I think that's the significant thing here. Yeah. All of these issues with the changes, right? The way that the changes kind of counteract the things we liked about the original probably could have been overcome if the ending wasn't a complete letdown in every regard. Yes. The ending is really where you see the house of cards come down in terms of the changes they've made. And by the ending, do you mean including the sequence where everyone's wandering around in fog? I mean, that's just like poverty row ass, like... Pacing issues? Pacing issues. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is like the equivalent stuff happens in Fairman Maria. It's just that in Fairman Maria, we are actually outside. So the wandering isn't like, oh, we're wandering back and forth over the same six feet of set that we've tried to disguise by moving the camera angles and changing the amount of fog, right? Yeah. Um, No, I'm talking specifically about the ending in the church. Okay. So in Fairman Maria, Maria was up against like a seemingly flesh and blood man who was the embodiment of like the abstract concept of death and then metaphorically represented the SS, but like textually he's death. And she defeats him through cleverness by tricking him into drowning in the swamp. Mm -hmm. And there's even, you know, a bit where they do go to the church in the original, and it doesn't save her, which makes total sense, because death is going to come for you whether you're, you know, religious or not. Everybody dies. Yeah. Um, However, in this film, the danger is, like, explicitly and visually, clearly, a ghost. Mm -hmm. So you can't drown a ghost. So we need a different ending now. While the church doesn't work against death, it would work against Douglas. Because he's a ghost. Yeah. Then you have this arbitrary notion introduced that someone sacrificing themselves breaks the curse. Which, there's like no provenance for that, right? Like, it's first introduced in the movie as some guy in town heard it from, like, someone else... Because some of something some old woman said, right? Like, it doesn't come from the ghost. It wasn't <laughs> part of the original curse. It's just some, like, old wives' tale about the curse that then happens to be true. And it's not the way that ghosts work, yeah. right? Like, you get rid of ghosts by dealing with their um, unfinished business. So, you know, once the curse was fulfilled, presumably the ghost would go away. Except that his curse extends to all the descendants, right? He's probably like, fuck, I'm so tired. Why did I say the descendants as well? Now. I could have been done years ago. The 
sacrifice thing enables Maria to still be the hero, like in the original, by being the one to offer herself up. And this idea of, like, the innocent offering themselves up for the crimes that others have committed is, like, a very traditional, like, Christian Catholic idea and very traditionally also, like, a heroic thing for, like, women to do yeah. in stories. But it's bullshit. <laughs> and it's bullshit because there is no sacrifice. It's some Abraham and Isaac shit where she just has to show that she's willing to be sacrificed and then she tells the ghost to get right with God and that's enough to like exercise him and that's it and it's silly. Yeah. Like it's it's this guy's been terrorizing the town for like a bajillion years and all you had to do was hand him a chick tract like what the fuck? <laughs> it has no dramatic weight. Yeah. Like okay, why would the ghost care about Maria sacrificing herself? Yes, in a traditional story, she's the innocent doing the the take your crimes upon yourself Jesus thing. But Douglas isn't God. That sort of shit isn't going to impress him. And so it deflates the entire movie because it just like, oh, it was that easy all along. Yeah, I feel like if either one of us was like more religious, Mm. maybe we would see something here that we're missing. Because this movie really invokes religion. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I, I, it's not specifically Christian. Um, whenever someone invokes God, they say things like, Lord Almighty, mm-hmm. or my Lord, my God, whatever. Mm-hmm. They don't say Jesus or anything like that. True. Um, when they talk about the church, they do say church. They don't say, like, temple or synagogue or chapel. Yeah. So, like, it's a very, like, nameless brand. But the specific value set that the movie's evoking of, like, sacrificing yourself, uh, even though you don't deserve it for others and stuff, not only evokes Christianity, but, like, because of the way that it's Maria doing it. Yeah. You know, Mary. Yeah, yeah. It's very Catholic. Yes. um, in, In tone. Ultimately... The problem with it dramatically is, you know, if it had to be Maria doing the sacrifice, then she needs to die. It needs to actually be a sacrifice. But of course, it's Hollywood. It's 1946. It has to be a happy ending. So we're getting this manufactured happy ending. And then if you, you know, if it doesn't have to be Maria, what it really should be is it should be Christian. Yes. Offering himself up. Learning his lesson about, like... Because at one point, um, this, like, guy who's basically, like, LeFou mm-hmm. from Beauty and the Beast sure. to Sanders' Gaston right. um, says, like, no, I think I saw the Strangler out there. Maybe you, uh, Sanders, like, big head honcho, like, you've done so many great things. You'll definitely be remembered. Why don't you sacrifice yourself? And Sanders is like, yeah, I'm a great guy, so why don't you, a nobody... Sacrifice yourself. Yeah, it would be too much of a loss to the town for me to do it. Yeah, exactly. The character arc would be him sacrificing himself for his son mm-hmm. and, like, learning that humility. That's a character arc. That's dramatic resolution. So, ironically, the film is so married mm. to its original story of Fairman Maria 
that it it's not able to fully come to its own story. And, you know, you talked about how Maria is really reduced from the original because it's not her story. So then the problem becomes that if Sanders sacrifices himself, she's a completely 100% redundant character. Yeah. And that's, you know, ultimately because they've made enough changes to the original that the stuff from the original is basically vestigial almost. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing that is frustrating about Maria being the one to do the sacrifice is like, if you are married to that, because that's the story, it's the story of Maria and you need to keep Maria. Maria sacrificing herself tells us nothing about Maria. It's not a character arc. You know, it's, it's, Oh, what? The sweet and innocent girl will do the right thing for her lover when pressed? How surprising. Yeah. It's it's the same mistake that um, writers make when they have heroes in stories put themselves in danger to rescue, like, a sister or a parent or a child or whatever. Because, of course they would. Like, most folks would. What tells you more about someone is if they're willing to, you know put themselves in danger, even though it's bad for another reason or the person they're doing it for is someone they don't really know or whatever. Like there needs to be, you know, more at stake there with Christian. It's like, he's totally against the idea of doing it. He, for a long time, doesn't even believe in the ghost. He just had this big falling out with his son, Mm -hmm. you know, so it would really show something if he does it with Marie. It's just like, well, yeah, she's a nice girl. Yeah, exactly. So that's that's kind of my my biggest problem with the movie. Like, I think all the other changes that sort of lead to that ending being a problem could have been solved if they had figured out a more satisfying ending. Yeah. Some other things with this movie. Uh, the ghost basically just looks like Michael Myers. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to say because of, like, the... the crappy quality of what we were watching, like the YouTube version. that's fair. But it does just look like a white face without eyes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I actually quite liked the effects for the ghost, to be honest. Yeah. Um, He, it's Charles Middleton. He's very tall and gaunt, which is, works well for a ghost. And the effect is that he's, you know, translucent and wavery like a ghost. And he's kind of like fuzzy. He's out of focus as well as you know, in addition to being double exposed. Um, But then also he's always sort of surrounded by darkness Mm -hmm. and is sort of like comes into and out of this like ethereal blackness. I thought that was really cool. And then, yes, he has no eyes. Um, So actually I liked the ghost. I thought the ghost was a cool effect. Okay. I wanted more. I I guess like they were doing like enough for a Povertyville flick. I wanted him to do more. Yes. Um, How this ghost works isn't clear. Yes. Because it seems like... He can manipulate objects. Right. He can speak and engage with you. Right. But that's about it. Well, and like, so he can pull the fairy back and forth with his own two hands. Yeah. But then he can like telekinetically basically like close doors and windows and stuff or like make people not hear someone. But then like he doesn't have the ability to, like, actually strangle people. 
Yeah. Right? Like, all the strangulations are, like, weird... Happenstance. Yeah, that he's, like, caused to happen or something. Where, but it's all stuff that's, like, got plausible deniability, basically, <laughs> built into it. Yeah. And then the other thing is, like, we know that he can, like, like basically teleport. He's got, like, horror movie villain teleportation powers where, you know, you're looking at him and talking to him and then you turn to run away and he's now in front of you there, too. Yet we also see him, like, slowly walking through the swamp to, like, get it, people. So it's just, like, really unclear what he can and cannot do. And that's kind of because he's a ghost, but he's, like, stuck in the role of, like, someone who wasn't a ghost in the previous movie, right? Like, he still needs to be, like, slowly... And I I get where the Michael Myers comparison comes from, because he's, like, slowly stalking people through the night and stuff. But it's like, but dude, you're a ghost, (laughs) what could have been really neat is have this like mystery have the rumors that it's a ghost but have it be sanders who is the strangler killing people to get out who are like blocking him wanting to do something in the town see i thought that was what the ending was going to be Mm. and i was really glad it wasn't quite frankly oh because honestly that's like a like This is, like, our second American movie that has a real ghost in it. That's fair. Like, the idea that, like, oh, it's going to turn out to be Old Man McGillicuddy because he needs to build, like, an oil factory on the town and nobody (laughs) wanted to sell. Like, that's that kind of Scooby-Doo shit is very 1920s. And I was glad that that didn't happen here. Fair enough. So I think in terms of like what this movie does well, uh, we already mentioned the like the sets and the fog and the and the shadows and stuff. I think the score deserves some praise for doing a lot of um, heavy lifting in this movie. Like it really helps to create the mood the movie wants to have, given the limitations of the sets. Also, given the limitations of the actors, um, yeah. I think that everyone in the cast is fine. Like none of them are bad. They all are sort of doing what they are supposed to do, but no one's really going, like, above and beyond. I do, however, want to single out Rosemary LaPlanche for some credit, just because I do think she gives the best performance in the movie, and she manages to do that despite the fact that she's a beauty queen who had never starred in a movie before. (laughs) So, like, you know, she's not incredible or anything, but she's, like, a completely untrained actor doing very well as opposed to a bunch of trained actors who are doing just okay. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So where would you like to rank this? Sarah, I think we're both agreed that obviously this isn't as good as Ferryman Maria. Absolutely not as good. Yeah. And while I do think this movie is, I don't think this movie's bad. I don't think it's garbage. Like I think it's pretty good for a PRC film. I think it's pretty good on its own. It just suffers a lot in comparison to its predecessor. So I was kind of looking just a little bit above the middle of the list. I have a bit of a wide range. Okay. So my ceiling is number 37, which is The Devil Commands, which I thought had a more interesting take on, like, the supernatural and ghosts and, like, what lies beyond than this movie, which has, like, a very traditional, like, Washington Irving, you know, sort of take on folk tales. Washington Irving? Is that like an author? The writer of Sleepy Hollow. Oh. Making my way down from there, you know, there's stuff below that that 
we like a lot, like the Black Room. There's other stuff that's kind of meh, like the Monster Rally movies. Um, there's stuff that we found impressive, like uh, Phantom of the Convent. There's stuff that's sort of 50-50, like Captive Wild Woman. But where I stopped, I was like, no, this is definitely better, was at number 51, Invisible Ghost, which is the one where Lugosi's wife stands outside in the rain and stares at people. Yeah, like the surprise gothic movie. Yeah. which That was also from PRC? No, that was Monogram. Not Monogram. Was Monogram 9. Yeah. I, I think that movie's surprisingly good for being one of the Monogram 9, and it's a lot of fun. But I think this movie deserves more credit for being able to create that mood and atmosphere uh, of, like, you know, the swamp and the fog and, and the ghost and all of this stuff. So that was my range, 37 to 51. Okay. So my range, um, my ceiling is actually number 52. Oh. <laughs> uh, the Ghoul. <laughs> because the ghoul is a, a bad Karloff film, a bad mummy knockoff. Um, and my floor is 61, The Mummy's Tomb. Mm, sure. Um, now, right above that is Dracula's Daughter. I feel like that movie was trying to do something new and then kind of floundered by the end. So at the lowest, I would put this as below Dracula's Daughter. But looking at, like, the bottom of your list and the top of my list, your floor and my ceiling, I disagree about the atmosphere and mood setting. I think it's definitely achieved in Strangler of the Swamp, but part of what makes Invisible Ghost gothic is the going for the atmosphere mm. and the mood. So how about we put Strangler of the Swamp below Invisible Ghost, but above The Ghoul. So right between our two lists. Yeah, I, I think I'm pretty okay with that. Um, you know, part of the thing that I liked about this over Invisible Ghost was that, um, like, there was a real ghost. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Invisible Ghost has... It's a metaphorical title in that case. <laughs> but Invisible Ghost does have, like, Legosi and, you know, a lot of good, fun performances that this movie kind of lacks. Like... No performance in this movie is bad enough to bring the movie down, but no performance is good enough to really stand out. Yes. So, yeah, I am totally cool with putting the movie there. So entering the list at number 52 is Strangler of the Swamp, directed by Frank Wispar from 1946. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, if you have any comments, questions, cool thoughts about horror, send them in there, or you can email us directly at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and you can find the show wherever fine podcasts are available, by subscribing through our RSS feed. You can help the show out by recommending us to a friend, talking about us on social media, um, generally helping to spread the word to new audience members. Um, this month, November, has been our biggest month yet, um, which I'm super grateful about and is just so amazing. And I'm so grateful to all of our listeners. Mm-hmm. 
Another thing that would really help us out a lot is if you headed to patreon.com slash podcast. There you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons get thanked on the show, and at the $5 and $10 levels get access to bonus content, like deleted clips from past episodes, whether they be bits of research that maybe didn't turn out to be as relevant as we hoped, or like goofs that maybe went on too long. <laughs> that never happens. Or uh, straight out bloopers. Uh, they're always a lot of fun to listen to. And we are looking forward to the day when we will hit our first Patreon goal of $150 a month, at which point we'll start producing bonus episodes, one a month, about horror-adjacent movies. Stuff that isn't really horror, but, you know, it's got a ghost in it, or a vampire, or, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Also available on our Patreon still and forevermore will be all of our Halloween October special content. This past October, I produced an audiobook of Carmilla. Mm -hmm. Um, Ben uh, led research on a special, like, Scream Scene spinoff episode on the uh, strange life and death of Vera West, Mm -hmm. as well as October 2018 stuff with um, special writings from Ben and a horror-themed EP from me. Yeah, and all of that Halloween special content is available to patrons of any level. Yeah, so um, take a listen. That's patreon.com slash Podcast. For people to keep on listening, what are we doing next week, Ben? Next week, Sarah, we're watching a movie from Monogram. So going from one Poverty Row studio to another. It stars John Carradine. Oh. And it's called The Face of Marble. Okay. I know nothing about it. All right. Carradine going from playing Dracula to a marble face. Hey, listen, he's not the first Dracula actor to make his way from Universal to Monogram. Yes. Well, we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. See you then. Bye. Bye. Bye.